Okay, good morning everyone. Good to see you. If you haven't met me, my name's Stuart. I'm the leader of the church. A very warm welcome to you, whether it's your first time or your hundredth time. If you've got a Bible, could you go to John chapter 15, please? No, John chapter 13. We'll get to 15. John chapter 13. We're going to be continuing our series through the book of John entitled, Who is This Man? We started this back in January. We set ourselves the goal to preach through the entire book of John, to study it. We're currently in chapter 13, and we're hoping to round most of it off by the end of the year. We won't get through all of it, but we'll do most of it um, by then. Um, As what Mel mentioned about our meeting in a couple of Tuesdays' times uh, with June Adams, any details you want for that, where it is, timings, please go on our website. It's all on there. Um, We'd love to make sure you're in the right place at the right time. If you're new amongst us and you want to keep up to date with what you're, you're doing, on your chair, you should, should find one of these, a contact card. Please just fill it in. Come and give it to me at the end. We'll just keep you up to date. We'll put you on our email list. We won't spam you, but we send you an email once a week just saying this is what's going on in real life church so you don't miss out on anything that's happening amongst us. All right, John chapter 13. You should have found it by now. We have entered the final week of Jesus' life. Okay, we've, we've followed him since eternity past in John 1. It says, in the beginning was the word, Jesus. He then came to earth as a man. It said he dwelt amongst us. And we followed his life through the eyes of one of his disciples, John, as he recorded it, wrote it down. We've now reached the last few days of his earthly life. He has had uh, dinner with his disciples. Uh, the Last Supper is often referred to. And so he's sharing this dinner, which is the Passover meal, the, the high point of the Jewish religious kind of calendar. They've all got to Jerusalem with many thousands of pilgrims and they are celebrating the Passover feast. Jesus then does um, a stunning thing. We looked at this last week. If you missed it, you go on our website, you can catch up with the sermon there. Jesus, it says during the dinner, he got up and he took off his outer garment and he wrapped a towel around his waist and he washed the feet of his disciples, which in that day and that culture was a stunning display of humility and putting yourself kind of in the lower position. It was washing someone's feet was something that was reserved for the most menial servant. It was the lowest task. Uh, A modern equivalent might be cleaning the toilets or something like that, something really low that no no kind of male Jew of good standing would ever, ever think of doing, ever demean themselves to that. But yet Jesus, a teacher, a rabbi, chose... To wash his disciples' feet. And we looked at the outwork of that. And we learned that, that God loves us through that. There was a display of God's love. There also was a symbol of Jesus washing, saying, if you're part of me, you're clean. Basically saying, I'm, I'm going to deal with your sin in this act of washing dirt off your feet. I'm actually going to deal with the problem in you. And you will be clean because you're in me. And that will be dealt with. And then, and then Jesus said at the end, that because I've done this, you have a model to follow. You are to live your life like this. Not seeking the higher position, but actually seeking the lower position and serving others. Jesus says, I've done, you do it. He said, no one's greater than their master. No servant or no student is greater than the master. I've done this, so you will do this. And then right at the end, in verse 17, we saw actually we would be blessed if we did that. Jesus says that, actually, you're blessed if you do this. There are blessings from God, things that we can't always put into words that come from serving one another. And now as we follow on, it basically this is still a flow of kind of, of thought that John is writing. And what we're entering here at some point in this next passage, theologians debate about exactly where it starts. 
we've got something called the farewell discourse, which basically means the back end of chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, and chapter 17 in John are basically Jesus' final words to his disciples. They're basically the last words of Christ to his followers before he goes and faces the ordeal of the cross. He knows what's coming. He knows he's going to have to die. He knows he's going to be betrayed and he's taken by his enemies and he's going to face the pain of the cross and the separation from his father and die a horrible, shameful death. He knows that's ahead of him. And in these last few chapters, he is trying to put something into words for his disciples. The last kind of, these are my last instructions for you because the next thing you're going to see me is I'm going to be hanging on a cross dead. Okay, so I need to tell you something. If you've got one of those flash Bibles where it puts the words of Jesus in red, the next few chapters are all red, basically, because it's Jesus just speaking to his followers, giving counsel. And John, one of his disciples, has written this down because he was there. He was there and he heard it firsthand. And I want you, if you haven't done so, over the next few weeks as we look at this sort of discourse, as they call it, in, in detail. I want you to take time just to read it for yourself. If you haven't read it for a while, just take these chapters, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, just read them. Jesus' final words to his followers before he faces the cross. Study them, meditate on them, um, and, and have a look at them. Get them into you because they're important words. And what we're going to look at today, unfortunately what we're going to look at today is on the, um, on the downer side. You know when you kind of, you know, everything's going well and you're having a good time and then someone throws in one of those things that basically just kills the atmosphere. You know, a conversation assassin that says something and everything just goes, and everyone's like, great, thanks. Who invited you? Jesus is going to do that because we've had, they're celebrating the Passover, which is this wonderful festival which celebrates God's deliverance of his people, setting them free. We read about that in the book of Exodus. God set them free. They're now free from the slavery in Egypt. And every year the Jews would celebrate that and say, wasn't God good? He delivered us. And, and the, the Jesus and his followers are there to celebrate that. But Jesus knows actually a bigger deliverance is coming. And actually it's not going to be that, that kind of earthly deliverance which they celebrate. There's going to be a greater spiritual deliverance through him through his death on the cross, they're going to be free from sin. But actually, the disciples don't get it at this point. They're not quite understanding. And he's got to tell them that actually it's going to happen not the way you expect it. Some bad stuff's going to happen to make it, hap- to make it, you know, make it worthwhile. You know, the Son of Man has to die and suffer for you to get the freedom. And this is all part of God's plans. And he's got to give this kind of bad news to them. Plus, he's also got some bad news for some of the people in the room. You know, imagine that I've got some bad news for you. And he's got to deliver some bad news, which will have repercussions for everyone there. So what would have been a, possibly a time of celebration and remembering what God had done is now going to take a turn for the worst through Jesus' words. So we've got chapter, uh, verse 18 we're going to start. Jesus has just washed their feet. Blessed of you if you do this. And he says, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will Betray me. Disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. 
One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus, of whom was he speaking? So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus has the money bag, Jesus was telling him, uh, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify in him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you. Where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will all follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Okay, a prediction of betrayal and a prediction of denial. So not the best kind of after supper conversation. Jesus has already predicted his betrayal. He predicted it in chapter 6. He predicted it in chapter 12. He predicted it again at the beginning of this chapter. And he quotes a psalm, Psalm 41 there in verse 18. And the psalm was written by King David. We can read about it if you go into your Old Testament. And what happens in that psalm, David is very ill. He's on his deathbed and he is being mocked by his enemies. They're basically just saying bad things about him. Why don't you just die? You know, they're, they're coming after him. And what's more, what's make it worse, he's not only been mocked by his enemies, he's actually been betrayed by one of them. And he uses that frail. Um, they've lifted their heel against him. And that basically means they've turned their back on him, they've betrayed him, they've gone out against him. And Jesus, Jesus is, is quoting that psalm as a fulfillment of that, saying actually like David was betrayed by his enemies, um, by those again, so will he be betrayed by his enemies. And, and what's more with Jesus, it's actually going to be one of his close associates who's going to do it. And he's predicting it, and he says, that I'm going to predict this to you to prove who I am. It says, one of you is going to betray me, and it says, you will know, because I'm telling this, that I am he. Once it's happened, you'll know that I am he. You know who I am. I'll prove my divinity to you, that I am the one God has sent. I am the chosen one. I am God the Son, come in flesh to earth. He said, by, by telling you, this is what's going to happen. This is where it's going to go. I'm going to provo- pro- prove my Messiahship. He says at the verse, end of verse um, 19, they say, I am he. That, that hints at all these other great I am statements Jesus makes. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the life of the world. It's that same words there. He's saying, I am he, and I'm going to be betrayed um, by you. And then he says later, he says, truly, truly, 
one of you will betray you. Remember that he uses that phrase a lot in John. It's come up time and time again. He's basically saying, this is, what I'm about to say is very important now, and it is, it is true. I'm underlining it. Truly, truly, one of you will betray me. And it's not, Jesus isn't indifferent to this. It says he was in anguish, in turmoil. It, he was troubled in spirit. There was something in him that wasn't happy about this. He was upset. He was emotionally kind of undone by this news. Even though he knew it was coming, it didn't kind of have any effect on him. It's the same sort of phrase that was used when he was at the grave of Lazarus, his friend who had died. And Jesus knew he was going to actually raise Lazarus from the dead, yet he was still emotionally undone by the event and wept um, at the tomb there. And Jesus is in the same place. He is He is bothered by what is going on, and he knows one of his friends um, is going to betray him, one of the 12, one of his closest associates. And I want to point out a fascinating thing that kind of came, came to me as I was reading it. The other disciples didn't know who it was. We know. Judas, he's the bad guy. We know that's, that's part of our kind of modern vernacular. If you call someone a Judas, we all know what that means. Means they're the betrayer. They they've turned their back on you. It's become kind of part of our our kind of just common language. But for these guys, there was there'd never been a Judas. <laughs> they were just all there. They were Jesus' twelve followers. They were his inner circle, and they they all look at each other like, well, who is it? Which means Judas looked just like them. He wasn't a Disney villain. You watch Disney things, Disney cartoons. I have kids. We have to watch Disney. You know, Disney villains look like villains. They kind of have hunched shoulders and they kind of got dark under their eyes or they wear dark clothes or they got horns coming out of their helmet or something. They look like baddies and as soon as they come on the music play, da da da, and you're like, yeah, bad guy. Bad guy's coming and yeah, yeah, boo. You know, we treat like that. Judas didn't look like that. He looked like you and he looked like me. He just fitted in with what was going on with everyone else because they all looked at each other like, well, well who's going to betray me? Who's going to betray Jesus? You know, they're like, well, they didn't know. They didn't know. And there was Judas right in the middle there. And, and this, what must have happened at this point where they're celebrating the meal and then Jesus just comes out with it. He's washed their feet, which has caused enough kind of like, <gasps> Jesus, you're washing my feet. Then he just says, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. What must the atmosphere have been like? Must, must have heard a pin drop. And they're just stunned. Now, who normally in this situation would pipe up and say something? Peter. You know, he's always the one, you know, he's disagreeing with Jesus or, you know, he's, he's got something to say. But even in this one, he is so stunned to silence that he actually, he, he doesn't say anything. He just motions someone else to do it. It says he, he motions the disciple Jesus' love. That's a reference to John who wrote this gospel. And he basically is like, John, you're near Jesus. You ask him who it is. Because we still last week, they're around a table, sort of, them all around this low table, and they'll be leaning on their left side in so they can get the food with their feet out, all kind of around the table. And Peter clearly wasn't that close to Jesus physically, so John obviously was. So he's like, John, ask him, you know, ask him. And so John is, he says he's near Jesus, and John had to kind of, if Jesus would have been here and John would have been here to ask him, he's got to kind of got to go, show Jesus. Who is it? Because it says he had to lean right back over him. Lord, who is it? Now, Jesus, he obviously, when he responds, he actually tells John, or he gives him that indication. He, doesn't, he can't have done it that loudly because the others still were unaware, but he, he, basically, he clearly identifies whoever I give this bread to, 
And even in giving the bread, dipping and giving the bread, it's a sign of friendship, a sign of kind of closeness. I'm giving you some of this food. Even in that, Jesus is offering love to Judas, saying, whoever I dip this bread in, I'm going to... I'm going to offer something to him. And so he gives it to Judas, clearly identifying Judas. What is Jesus' response to the love of Christ? It says, it says Satan entered him. Judas had willingly chosen his path. He's not a pawn of something else. He's actually, he has willingly made this decision for himself. He has willingly chosen to betray Jesus. And we read the other Gospels. Uh, we, it fills out the story. He went to see the religious authorities, he was paid for it. He, he kind of, you know, he was, he was willingly kind of complicit in what he did. And Jesus knows that. And he says, you've, you've chosen your path. You've, you've made your decision. You've kind of got to follow through with it. And he says, so whatever you're going to go do, just go and do it. So Judas left the meal at that point. And the other disciples still were unaware of why he left. They said, well, maybe he's going to pay for the meal. Because he's the guy who has the money, he's the treasurer, the accountant, he, he's going to go and pay for it. Or maybe he's going to give some money to the poor, they weren't sure. But Judas leaves the meal at that point to get on with his evil deeds that he's decided in his heart. And it makes this very sort of statement at the end, it just says, and it was night. Throughout the book of John there's this um, image of darkness and light, night and day. And the Son of Man is the one of light and he walks in the day, and actually evil and darkness, kind of that's what the representative is. So it goes out, and it was night. It's kind of, John is just painting the picture. This is a dark time. Jesus, Judas is on a um, kind of going out to do an evil act. So we've got one of his followers is about to betray him. So that's not particularly good. Now Jesus launches into teaching his disciples now, because Judas has gone. And so some theologians think the, the farewell discourse starts at this point. But he now begins kind of teaching his disciples and talking into it. But what he's going to do now, instead of it kind of necessarily taking a big upward, upward tail, he actually tells Peter, one of his closest, one of his inner core of three, that actually he's going to deny him. So we carry on. It says, Jesus has gone out, and now he makes a statement. He says, the Son of Man is now going to be glorified. And he even says that, uses this phrase, at once. It's going to happen now. This is it. The tone had always been, it's coming, it's coming, it's in the head one day, he will be lifted up, but now it's, it's turned to an immediacy, it's going to happen now. It's happening now right around us, the forces are being lined up against me, this is the time when I will be glorified. And Jesus' um, glory will be displayed in his perfect obedience to the Father, his perfect obedience to the Father in going to the cross, in dying um, for the sins of the world. And in these next few chapters, Jesus is preparing his followers for this fact because they still haven't got it. We saw last week when he said, actually, you're only going to understand this after the event. But I'm going to teach you now so when it happens, you will be ready. And he starts teaching them like a head of a family. He calls them little children. And he's trying to kind of prepare them for what's going to come because they've put their faith and trust in him. They've followed him and they're about to see everything go go pear-shaped. It's all going to go belly up when he is captured and arrested. Um, He said he's only going to be with them a little while longer, a a reference to not only his death, but also then the subsequent ascension when he goes to heaven and he leaves them, um, but then sends the Spirit to be with them. And he gives them this command. He says, I'm going, I'm going to be glorified. And it gives one one of the famous verses in John's Gospel, verse 34. It says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Jesus is saying, actually, what I want you guys to do in the midst of all this stuff that's swirling around, in the midst of the betrayal that's going to come, in the midst of the denial that's going to come, in the midst of the apparent 
defeat that I'm going to face and the subsequent kind of repercussions there, what I want you to remember is that you are to love one another. And the model of that love is as I have loved you. So Jesus says, wash their feet, literally just done that. So that's fresh in their mind. So there is a model of serving love. I'm going to love you in serving you and taking that menial task to to do good for you and not put myself in a higher position, even though I am worthy of it. I'm going to put myself in a lower position to make it right. So we've looked at that last time. So there's a serving love, but there's also an element of sacrificial love because I'm about to die for you. My love is so so great like that that actually I'm going to it's going to take me to the cross and on the cross I'm going to die in your place for your sins. So we have those kind of elements there, and he's saying. That's my model. You're to love one another as I have loved you. You're to, to show that love to, to each other. That's the way you're meant to live as my community, as my church, as it will become. That's what you're meant to show to one another. That's the, that's the standard of how you're going to live. And actually it says then at the outworking of that, if you do that, what will happen? People will know you're my disciples. People are going to know you're my followers. They're not going to know you're my followers because you tell them or you wear the T-shirt or you carry the Bible or you go to the, the building. Whatever it is, it says you're going to know by the way you act and serve and love and care for one another. That's going to be the model. That's what I want you to grasp in the midst of this. And Jesus just demonstrated in feet washing. He even demonstrated in his, his way he dealt with Judas. If I was a son of man and I knew Judas was going to betray me, I wouldn't have given him a morsel of bread. I'd have given him lightning bolt or, you know, something much more impressive like that. Angel, you know. Jesus offered him love and just said, you know, are you? No, Judas turned his back and said, I'm going to go. And that's that's the standard of love we're supposed to have on that. Peter has found his voice. Because he's like, this is all happening. And Jesus is saying, you have to love one another. And what does Peter jump in? He's like, he's totally missed the love bit. He's like, where are you going? That's his only thought. Where are you going? Where are you going? We're, we're coming with you. Where are you leaving? And Jesus is saying, you can't follow me where I'm going, but you will follow afterwards. That's a, a reference. We know from church history the way um, the apostle Peter died. He was crucified upside down in Rome, church history tells us. And Jesus actually is making a, an, a kind of allusion there, which will actually come, we'll see at the end of John's gospel. It comes up again, the path Peter will follow in his life following Jesus. But actually saying, you can't follow me now. You're not going to be able to go where I'm going. You will follow afterwards. You will end the same way. And Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. This is a totally devoted man. He loves the Lord. He's saying, I'm just going to lay down my life for you. I'm going to give everything for you, Lord. And then Jesus makes another kind of jaw-dropping statement to Peter. Will you lay down your life for me? Maybe he smiled at that point. You know, sadly, and then says, truly, truly, there's that truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So you've got one of Jesus' followers is going to betray him. Judas has gone out, and now he's looking, and that's left a little bit, a bit kind of ambiguous for most of them. They don't know what's going on. And then Peter looks, uh, Jesus looks Peter now. Now, Peter was kind of the leader of the group. He's always named first in the list. He's, he's the most vocal. He's one of uh, Jesus' inner three. He had the 12, but he had Peter, James, and John were like his like, little inner group that he often took away, Mount of Transfiguration, other points. He was one of those guys. So he was one, he was one of the ones close to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him, you know, he was kind of their superstar. 
And he says, you're going to deny me, not once, not twice, but three times. I mean, what sort of atmosphere did it leave at that point? One's gone. John knows where he's gone. He's gone to betray Jesus. The others are sitting there going, one of us is going to betray him. And then he looks at their leader. (laughs) You're going to deny me three times. I mean, that must have killed the atmosphere. Something rotten at that point. We'll leave that there. um, And Jonathan will pick that up next time we come to that. Three things I want us to pull out of this um, for us. And then we'll finish. If you're taking notes. Number one. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed and denied. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed and denied. Jesus there knows. He has divine knowledge, foreknowledge of his betrayal coming at the hand of Jesus and his denial coming at the hand of Peter. So we've got kind of backstabbing betrayal on one hand, but actually flat outright denial, you know, denying they know him, disowning on the other hand. And he has faced both of them. Jesus didn't kind of face it like some robot in some neutral state or like some Zen guru who is so calm and above human emotion or or anything like that. He faced it head on and he faced the full level of torment and anguish that that would have bring. Think about your own emotions. Think about have you ever been in a situation where you have been betrayed or you felt like you've been betrayed, or someone has told lies about you, or someone has kind of massively let you down, or they've stabbed you in the back, or they've kind of just shunned you for something. Jesus knows what that's like. And the emotions you will have felt in those situations, he will have felt. He will have gone through that. And one of the things to dwell on here is actually... In whatever situation we will have faced, whatever kind of situation we'll have got, been on the receiving end of, there's always an element of we're not perfect in it. We might have exacerbated the situation, we might have contributed to the situation, we might have not helped it in some way. Jesus was completely perfect and therefore he bore no fault in it whatsoever. He was perfect, he was sinless, he was without error in any form. And so he has no there's, no, there's no way he can say, well, actually, I played my part in it. I can hold my hands up. He didn't do any of that. He is completely guiltless, yet he is on the, the receiving end of a betrayal and a coming denial from one of his dear close friends. And I just, have you ever been through something like that? Have you ever been through that situation? Because if you have, Jesus can understand. Jesus can empathize with you. It's what marks Christianity different from all other religions. We have a God who's been there and done that. We can't stand before Jesus and say, you don't know what it's like, because he does. He came to earth. He dwelt as a man. He went through all our kind of frailties and everything we have, we have endured. And betrayal is one of them, being disowned by friends. He's been on the receiving end of that which makes him the ideal person to go to when that happens to you. Hebrews says, look at Hebrews says, he is, he is that high priest who can intercede with us and he can empathize and sympathize with what we've been through. He understands it. He's not aloof and above, sitting floating on a cloud far above our trials and torments down here. He's lived through them himself. So he is the perfect person to go and talk to it. 
And if you've ever been through that kind of situation, going through that situation, he's the one to go to. He's the one to walk through with it because he knows what it's like and he has the resources to help you. And I just challenge you today, is there pain and unforgiveness in your life that you're holding on to because you've been on the receiving end of a denial, a betrayal of some sort? Um, in preparing this, I was reminded again of when this happened in my life. I've been on the, um, both Mel and I actually were both on the receiving end of this. Uh, we worked for a local church for a number of years. We were part of it uh, for many years. We were even married in that church. We grew up kind of, grew our, our, our life together. The beginning of our life is part of that church. But right at the end of the story, we were basically, it felt like we were betrayed and effectively run out of the church. We lost our jobs. We were both on staff at the church. Um, and it resulted in us leaving our jobs, and we were kind of in a very short space of time, sort of out of it, lost our friends, lost sort of our community we were part of, and sort of felt cast adrift. And you're like, that's when you're in that situation, you kind of get all these emotions going through you of actually of anger, of pain, of resentment, of bitterness, of just not understanding God, what are you doing? Why have we come to this? Did we deserve it? All these kind of questions. And that's not an easy place to be. And if you've been through anything like that, you'll know what that's like. That's, it's a hard, difficult place to be. But Jesus knows what it's like. So what do you do with that? How do you deal with that? I'll just, I'll, every situation is different, but I'll, just, I'll put some out to you and see if, you can, um, if they help you. The first thing you do is you need to take it to God. <laughs> If you've ever read the Psalms, they are full of human emotion, heightened human emotion. Whether it's joy and worship or anger and pain and fury at God. The Psalmist knew how to be real about their emotions with the Lord. And if you feel anger or pain or frustration, you have to process it with God. That means the best thing is probably go and find somewhere where you can't be heard. An upstairs room, somewhere out in the park. And let God know how you're doing. If that means yelling, yell. If that means crying, cry. If that means whacking something, find something soft. But do that. You know, Beat the snot out of your pillow. Whatever it is. But process those emotions with God. He can cope. He's heard it all before. He's been through it himself. He knows what's that like. Talk to him. If possible, you need to talk to the individual involved. Now that's quite a tough one. Especially if they're not around or you can't. But if you can, do what you can. I actually had to do it last week um, with another individual who I felt had kind of let uh, me down in terms of uh, church and some bits we were doing here. And I had to get in the car and drive an hour and a half to meet him. I said, I've come to meet you. Because it kind of got to that point where I said, I've got to do something about this. I can't just ignore it and be stroppy for a while. I've got to go and deal with it. And so I drove, um, took someone with me to help me, drove, and we had a heart-to-heart and I had really low expectations of what would happen. And, and God was good. It was wonderful. <laughs> we managed to process it and work it out. But actually going and talk to someone, if it's, if it's possible, do that. If it's not, write a letter. Write something down. Process your emotions actually by doing something like that. Writing something down. Getting something on paper can help you process. It can be a cathartic experience of actually releasing what you're doing. You can then take that to God in prayer and actually say, this is how I'm really doing. Before I went to see this guy, I wrote an email. And then I showed Melanie. 
and someone else and said, look, what do you think? Shall I send this email? And they both said, not a chance in heck. And I said, you cannot send that to them. You need to go and talk to them. But I'd managed to process some of my emotions and get them in order by doing it. Last one, get prayer. Get people to stand with you and pray. To pray for you, to pray that there will be release with you to help you walk through that situation. So if you're suffering from any of that, please process it somehow. Talk to someone. Do some of those things. Get some support on it. Do not stew alone. Number two, Jesus works all things for his glory. Jesus works all things for his glory. It's very clear there in verse 32. It's all going to be about his glory. He will be glorified through this. He's, he just, he's just predicted his betrayal, and his betrayer has just left. And then what's he say? I'm going to be glorified. I will be glorified through this. Knowing that someone is going to betray him and Peter's about to going to deny him within a few short hours, God is still working out his sovereign plan and it will all turn out for the glory of God and the coming of God's kingdom. Even premeditated betrayal, even someone deliberately trying to derail the situation and cause someone's death cannot stop this coming out. Both these, the betrayal and the denial, were both uh, sinful acts of imperfect men done in different ways, but both of them were turned around by God and used for his glory. And we're, we're responsible for our own actions. Let's never get away from that. When we sin, we're responsible. But God somehow, in his magnificent sovereignty, can take whatever happens and turn it for his glory and his good. He can do that. Whether you've made mistakes, whether things in your life that you think, do you know what, screwed up there, made a mistake there, even if it was something that happened many years ago, God can still turn it for his glory. Even if things were done to you, which is actually sometimes even more painful, you were the victim. Something hit you. Someone did something to you that you felt unprovoked. God can turn that for his glory. God can take our wounds and use them for his good. God can take our mess and turn it into a ministry for him. He can do that. And going back to that situation I mentioned where we were kind of, where we kind of got felt kind of just got pushed out of the church we were a part of and everything that happened there. It was a, a very trying time for us. But when I reflect back now, this side of it, with God's kind of grace and actually to look at what happened, the bottom line is this church wouldn't exist if that hadn't happened. Because we left there, we joined another church, and by God's grace, we were both actually taken on and actually given jobs, became part of the staff. I became one of the elders there. Melanie was the evangelist. And then as soon as we arrived, Mel was taken on as the evangelist with her history as a youth worker. She'd been a youth worker for years. And all of a sudden, the church needed a youth worker because something happened in the church. And it was like, well, we've got a ready-made youth worker here. Mel led the youth work for a few years, trained up the new youth leader. When we left, they had a youth leader in place ready to go to run um, the youth work, he's still doing that. Now, we came there, met a bunch of people who became the core of Real Life Church. If we had never gone to that church, we'd never have met them. Some of you are like, really? Yeah. <laughs> we'd never have met you. I hope that's a good thing. No. But yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> I, hope that's a, I hope that's a positive thing. We met you. We changed your life. So there was many good things that came out of it. And I needed to, to kind of work through the heel, the pain and all that kind of stuff. But out of that... We met a core of people. We did life with them for a number of years. Then God said to us, it's time to leave. It's time to go somewhere else. It's time to start something new. And some of them came with us. And this is the result. God has done incredible things. And I, re- I challenge you to reflect on some of the things that have happened in your life. 
You might think about and actually think, what has God brought out of that? Even if you can't think about it, pray, God, what have you brought out of it? Because he will bring glory out of all of our mess. And so reflect upon that. The last one, Jesus gave his uh, followers a new way to live. He gave them a new commandment. This new commandment was part of the new, um, the new um, community he was building, the church we call that. This new covenant believers and he was, he was inaugurating that as part of the, the, the Last Supper and read the other Gospels. He, as, he's, as he's breaking the bread and the wine, he talks about a new covenant, a new agreement between God and man. This is what I'm starting. There's a new standard in this new community that you love one another. The purpose, there's an outward-looking purpose that men will know you're my disciples because of what way you love and care for one another. And I don't know if you've ever reflected about what this church would look like we love one another, or what the community of God's people would look like if we love one another. Here's a few things I just wrote down thinking, I'll throw these out. Hopefully this will inspire you. If this was a community where we love one another, that means no one would be left out. No one would be left out. Everybody would be included, particularly the new people. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Who's the most important person in this room right now? The new one. Because they've walked through that door and they don't know what the heck's going on. They think all of us know each other and are really good friends and they know no one. And it might not be true, but that's what they think. They don't know where anything is or what's going on. They don't know anyone's name. And they're kind of, and that's why it's so important that when new people come to the door, we are welcoming and inclusive. And that just includes, this meeting includes in any meeting, our small groups, any context where we fear new faith, don't know you, let's go and say hi. And you might not know them, and they might not turn out to be new, but at least you've spoken to someone you didn't know before <laughs> if you go and chat to them. If this is a place we love each other, needs would be met. We wouldn't just look after our own needs. We'd seek to serve the needs of others. What are your needs? How can I help you? One that's happened a lot recently is um, when uh, we have new mummies. We seem to be inundated. We're a baby factory over the last few years. Babies everywhere, pregnant women everywhere. And when new, a new baby is born, we celebrate, but we say to the new family... We'll, we'll feed you for a week, for two weeks. We'll, we'll provide food. We'll come around and just give you food because when you've got a new child, the last thing you want to be thinking out in sleep-deprived, kind of shell-shocked world is f- cooking. So someone will come and bring you food. And that's a wonderful way to serve. We've got a lady, actually, who's not part of the church, who's recently had a baby, and a bunch of people went around and just brought her food. She could not believe it. Why are you doing this? Because you've had a child. It's hard work. We're just going to come bring around a meal every night just to help you serve you, serve the family. It's a place where we honor one another, where we speak well of one another, where we kill sarcasm and put-downs and seek to build up an honor. We honor gifts. We honor, we honor what people have in their character, and we seek to speak good and build other people up. We, actually, we want to speak words in such a way that people grow as we speak to them by honoring them, loving them in what we, what we say to them. It's a place where we challenge and confront if someone does something insensitive to hurt you, and they will, if they haven't, just hang around us. We'll get around to it. It's on our list at some point. You know, we'll say something to offend you or, or, or do something you know, to hurt you, whether it's kind of willful or just total, out of total ignorance. But it's a place where we challenge and confront and say, actually, you hurt me there. And give the person a chance to respond and say, I am so sorry. I, and we make up and we learn to forgive one another. It's a place where we stand and with those who are in pain, where we weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. And we might not have the answers. We just think this is life and it sucks sometimes. And we're just going to stand with you and love with you and cry with you as you deal with this difficult situation. 
It's a place where we're honest about our own trials and difficulties. We, we kill that kind of Christian thing where everything's fine. I'm fine, you're fine, you're all fine. And actually my life's falling apart over here. Actually, we're, we're honest about them. And you have to, you know, you choose your context. But actually, but we're real about our life. You know, some idiot called the church real life church, didn't they? So we need to kind of back that up somehow. It's a place that we serve the whole. We take our gifts, our talents, our time, whatever we've got, and we say, how can we best serve the whole, the community? Give ourselves to that. It's a place where we celebrate the good times. If you get a win, then I win because I'm just, I'm part of the team with you. So if something goes good for you, I just celebrate that with you. If God answers your prayer, that's wonderful. If God heals you, that's brilliant. If something goes right, well, fantastic. If you have a reconciled relationship, brilliant. I'm just going to celebrate it with you and enjoy that with you. And the result of us living like that, Jesus said, is the world will know that you're my disciples. The world's going to know because of the way you love each other, the way that you live as a community together. The world will see that and say, there's something different about that, and I want it, and I want to be a part of it. Because the reality is, most of what we do here, the world can do better. Can I be honest? Most of what we can do. They, They brew better coffee than us. Just go to one of the coffee shops, they do that. They'll have way better speakers, you know, just YouTube and different speakers and different, they'll have way better presentations, they'll have better music, better lights and audio and everything, they'll have way better buildings than this. They'll just do it better. What they can never beat us on is how we love one another because we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We have God in us and with us and we have his presence among us and they can never ever top us on that. But the only way we're going to do it is if we're willing participants with God. We have, to, we have to kind of give ourselves to that. And we'll do all the other things to the best of our ability. And we've got great people serving and working hard. And I don't want to demean their gifts. But I want to make sure that what we can offer the world and show the world is God's love in us for one another. Because the Bible says God's love. The Bible says God dwells in us. Follow the train of logic. Therefore, the way we love each other is we can be with the love of and passion of Christ himself who's washed the feet and died on the cross. And we can show that to the world. And the world will see it and take note and say, I want to be a part of it because I can't find that anywhere else. Families are breaking down. Society is fracturing. People are crying out to be loved and they're finding it in the wrong places. And the only place you find that is in God and amongst God's people because that's what we've got. And so that's what we're to do. We're to live that life loving one another serving one another and the world will come crashing into our, into our buildings and saying, we want that. We want to be a part of that. And all we then have to do is just tell them about Jesus. <laughs> That's where you find it. It's nothing about us. It's all about him. And we can do that by the power of this Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Stand up. Let's finish. I've gone on. I'm just going to pray and then I'll hand over to Matt and the guys and we're going to Worship Jesus. So maybe you just want to close your eyes, um, open your hands, just spend a, a moment just engaging with God. We've got a little bit of time for the kids to come in, so let's just, you know, give ourselves to Him. Holy Spirit of God, I ask you come on each of us now as your people, Lord. Lord, we can't do this without you. We can't do this without you. We need you to do this. If we try and generate of ourselves, it will just be works and it will, just, it will ultimately fail, become legalistic. So Holy Spirit, I ask you to come and fill us now with the love of Christ. 
I've asked you to come and fill us now with that supernatural power to love one another. Because, let's be honest, sometimes we're not very lovely. (laughs) We're not very lovely and we're really aware that some other people aren't very lovely, Lord. But you have caused us to be together, to be a church, to be your people in this place, Lord. And I want your help to love one another. I want to display that love that the outside world would look in and think, what is going on there? And it's just you at work in us. So maybe if you just want to take a moment, just ask God to do something like that in your life. To fill you with that love, to give you that love for others. Even to show you how, maybe to demonstrate that. You know, what do you want me to do, God? I want to thank you that in the face of betrayal and denial you still went to the cross to make this possible in the face of desertion of all your followers we'll see that later you still went to the cross in the face of false trials accusations beatings you still went to the cross and Lord I thank you you died my death on that cross in my place for my sin so that I could know you that this community could be born Lord Jesus thank you for that Lord God I ask God by your spirit you'd be present with us today as your people, that we would see you at work and that you would grow us as a community who love one another. God's people said, Amen.